Oh, uh, thanks very much, uh, Bill. What would a trip joining Bill be without a little drama? Uh, and uh, I want to say how happy I am to come here, truly. Um, I'm glad I got here. It did look a, a little iffy last night. <clears throat> the first person I talked to at United Airlines, I said, what am I supposed to do? And she went like this. And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to call up Bill and deliver the news and, and, and go home. And then I said, well, I'll just speak to one other person in, behind another counter. And he said, well, why don't you fly to Dayton? The plane leaves in 15 minutes. There's one seat left. I said, I'm on that plane. Because I figured if I didn't get here, it might be another 10 years, Bill, before. <clears throat> and uh, so it's a very special uh, opportunity for me. I'm delighted to be here uh, Bill has hosted me in Indonesia at a, a wonderful conference we were just reminiscing about a few minutes ago. And uh, um, <clears throat> I have tried through, uh, in my career the last few years to uh, use Indonesia as an interesting kind of comparative case uh, against, uh, to compare against my work on the Arab world and Iran. And uh, I'm also delighted that Dina Wisnu is here. I met Dina when I was a member of the NDI Carter Center delegation to, uh, to observe the elections in 1999. And uh, so this is a bit of a family reunion taking place, a particularly nice <coughs> experience for me. Um, I'm going to provide you a, a, a today with an overview of a, a, some of the initial results from a project I've been working on uh, with the United States Institute of Peace, a project funded by USAID, in fact, um, looking at the prospects for cooperation and strategic alliance making between Islamists and non-Islamist groups in the Arab world. Um, one of the assumptions <coughs> we make in this uh, study is that uh, if we are going to move beyond the bounds of a kind of state-managed game of liberalization, one that basically upholds the status quo and does not open up real space for substantive democratization, <clears throat> we're going to have to see a level of um, cooperation uh, between Islamist and non-Islamist groups uh, that has not existed before. You have a process of state-managed political opening that has taken place in many parts of the Arab world, <clears throat> a process which is largely controlled by regimes and controlled quite successfully. It's a, it's a process, and I'll talk about that in a moment, that involves also the tacit, if not explicit, cooperation of opposition groups in upholding it. Um, and therefore, it's not just a one-player game. It's very much a two-player game. Um, and it is a project that has uh, succeeded with, uh, with much more success than a lot of us would have predicted a few years ago. In fact, I would say the club of liberalized autocracies has expanded in the region. Um, rather than contracted, for reasons we can talk a little bit about as well. Um, but we assume that unless there's a, uh, uh, these groups that have, in effect, conspired to, uh, to let the system endure, decide otherwise and, and, and work for, different other, for other different purposes <coughs> and realign their basic strategies, liberalized autocracy will remain <coughs> probably the only game in town. So what we're looking at is the efforts to build political alliances, uh, the causes for their success and failure, and the consequences for political stability, particularly in Morocco, Yemen, Egypt, and Jordan. Those are the four countries we're working on, and for each of these countries, we have 
hired <coughs> a researcher who spent a great deal of time on the ground, researchers who already had considerable experience in these particular countries, and they are only finally releasing their <coughs> revised reports to us in the last week, literally, and I've been scampering to read those studies to provide you with some insights, and I've only begun to absorb some of the conclusions, and I'll begin to share them with you <coughs> today. Um, unfortunately, the conclusions are not encouraging. Um, the capacity and readiness of Islamist groups to cooperate with non-Islamists. And when I say non-Islamists, I prefer that term over secularists because many of the groups we're talking about aren't necessarily seculars, but they're not, they're not, they do not champion an Islamist agenda. In any case, the, the possibilities, the prospects for creating something that transcends a tactical alliance between non-Islamist and Islamist groups that can create political leverage on regimes to move beyond state-managed liberalization, the prospects of that are very slim indeed. Um, and I'll talk about why. In general terms, and then talk a little bit about two cases, Egypt and Morocco. <coughs> uh, as, indeed, I would suggest that uh, given the, the antagonism, the fear, particularly from non-Islamist groups and particularly from the secularists within those groups of uh, Islamist uh, success, even moderate Islamist groups, I might add, in fact, precisely because they're moderate, we'll talk about that in a, in a minute, um, I don't see the prospects for building s serious alliances as, as a good one. And as a consequence, I don't see any possibilities for creating sustained pressures on regimes or even to look at it somewhat more strategically to create the kinds of leverage that regime reformists need to enhance their capacity to push regimes towards greater, greater reform strategies. I don't see that as, as, as very good. Even in the best case, which we were talking about in the car just a while ago, Morocco, there, the news is that Islamists and non-Islamists hardly will meet in with the, sim the same room right now, in fact, and talk to one another. I have a conference that's going to take place in Morocco in a few weeks, and it's been a battle just getting everybody together in one room to talk to one another. The stakes are so high. The suspicion is so profound. The existential gap, the identity agendas, the economic agendas, the cultural, the linguistic, we were talking about North Africa, are so considerable. Uh, that it's been hard to organize a simple private meeting to bring these groups together to talk about their political experiences. So, um, and we'll talk a little bit about <clears throat> why this is the case. It's not, therefore, we're starting the series off on a rather bad news. Bill, I'm sorry to say that. I'll try to sort of end on a, on a lighter note. We'll see where this goes. Um, <clears throat> first of all, liberalized autocracy, and let's say, uh, say a few things about liberalized autocracy to help set the... Uh, to set the agenda here, to set the framework for our analysis. Um, in the Middle East, political pluralism has largely been a tool used by regimes to enhance their capacity to survive. Um, regimes have learned the hard way, and Algeria is the primary example of this experience, <clears throat> that the effort to completely stifle oppositions uh, leads to political instability and the possibility for a civil war. At the same time, the Algerian story has taught a lot of regimes in the region that a rapid move uh, from full autocracy to a fully hegemonic regime to something resembling a democratic regime is also opening up the space for political conflict and potential civil war. So regimes have <clears throat> come to the conclusion that a kind of opening managed by them that allows different groups the opportunity to speak but does not give any particular group actual political power, the capacity to undermine these regimes, that is, the, that is for these regimes the second best solution. Um, 
the interesting part of the story is that opposition groups have been complicit in supporting this this second best solution for opposition groups as well. Um, liberalized autocracy is is has often been preferred against the black hole of full democratization and the uh, and the brutality of full autocracy. Um, why is this the case? Why is it, has it been the case that both uh, Islamist and non-Islamist groups have given their tacit support to this experiment and regime manage liberalization? The answer is, I think, pretty straightforward. First of all, both groups have their patrons in these regimes and can lobby those patrons for certain kinds of concessions and policies. It's not as if liberalized autocracy is some sort of Potemkin village that has no substance to it. Uh, depending on which country you're talking about, Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, Yemen, Bahrain, liberalized autocracy provides more or less opportunities for Islamists and non-Islamists to uh, negotiate with regime actors and gain certain kinds of concessions. It also provides an opportunity, particularly through a system of managed electoral pluralism and competition for these various groups to actually have space under the rubric of parliaments which don't have much actual political or formal political or constitutional authority but nevertheless provide a kind of a zone for peaceful debate and criticism so long as that criticism doesn't cross certain kinds of red lines and one of the, one of which is questioning the very viability and legitimacy of the political system itself. And the other red line is taking on the political leaders, whether it's a Mubarak or whatever, in highly personalistic terms. Those are two red lines. If you're careful about not crossing them, there's a, quite an extraordinary range of criticism of regimes. Look at the Kuwaiti parliament. Spend a few days in the Kuwaiti parliament. It's absolutely remarkable how much criticism there is of the regime and of the ruling family, in fact. Having said that, if you go and talk, as I have, to Kuwaiti parliamentarians among the Islamist and non-Islamist groups and ask them whether they really want a full, fully democratic regime, both of them will tell you no. I mean, they'll whine constantly in the press about the absence of democracy. But when you press them, when you ask them, do you want a fully competitive game in which there's sufficient uncertainty such that your opponent might win, of course, the secularists or the non-Islamists say absolutely not. Absolutely not. We do not want that. But the Islamists will often say the same thing as well. Why is that? In part because they have strong patrons in the regimes that will do their bidding on particular issues, cultural and educational issues. And the foreign, they're not, they, it's not the, as if they don't have certain influence and power. But moreover, they game it out. They understand if that they prevail in an election and they succeed, they will so antagonize non-Islamists and the military or intelligence establishments in their countries, the whole process might be shut down anyway. So if you look at how the Ikhwan Muslimin in Egypt gamed out the most recent election, or if you look at how uh, the PJD in Morocco has, in the most recent parliamentary elections has acted, both have restrained themselves from winning <laughs> quite, quite rationally, quite intelligently, quite strategically, because they understand that if they win in a decisive way, the whole game might be shut down. So there has been a kind of tacit, um, tacit alliance, a tacit support for this sort of status quo that has succeeded in creating, creating a, a level of openness 
a level of domestic live and let live kind of consensus. No, no effort to create a common sort of viable view of the future. God knows that has not happened. But a sense of kind of peaceful coexistence between these various groups. And as I said, partly the, the tragedy of Algeria sort of reinforced the perception of both opposition groups and leaders in the region that this was a second best solution. And I use that term intentionally and somewhat ironically, perhaps, because as many of you know who have read the Hassan Salame book, Democracy Without Democrats, question mark, uh, there was a debate uh, uh, some 10 years ago or more among scholars of the Middle East asking whether the transitions literature as uh, found in the works of Guillermo O'Donnell and Philippe Schmitter and so on, focusing on this notion of non-Democrats uh, embracing democratic procedures, not because they were necessarily committed to de de democratic norms, but because these procedures created a foundation for creating social peace, and that democracy was a way of resolving conflicts, uh, particularly socioeconomic conflicts. And the question was whether this model of democracy without Democrats could be applied to um, the Middle East, um, I think that the book that came out of this whole question, the conference and the book, provided a, a, a somewhat pessimistic answer to the question. But I've often thought about the, a similar phenomenon in terms of liberalized autocracy, and that is what I call autocracy with Democrats. <laughs> autocracy with Democrats is a, a situation of a tacit alliance where would-be Democrats or, or political actors who under other conditions in which the perception of fear was reduced, would act as Democrats do cho choose not to or choose to tacitly support authoritarian regimes. And we have had this phenomenon of autocracy with Democrats or would-be Democrats or potential Democrats for some time in many parts of the Arab world. And this sort of uneasy coexistence, this tacit alliance, has begun, however, to fray at the edges in the last few years. And it's that fraying process and increasingly... Uh, the, the willingness of certain key actors who supported reconsidering the status quo to do so that raised this whole question of whether, in fact, we could talk in, about and envision the kinds of political alliances between Islamists and non-Islamists that a few years ago we wouldn't have talked about uh, or envisioned, certainly in the 90s. Um, what has created this frame of uh, this consensus or this, this support for this sort of status quo? Well, I think that, <coughs> excuse me, I have a bit of a cold. I think that um, both Islamists and non-Islamists have begun to wonder whether they deserve something more from, from a, out of the game of political participation than, than a kind of regime-oriented controlled game that limits their capacity to express real political power. Both have re recognized that uh, the situation of regime manipulation and instrumentalization of opposition groups it really puts a cap, a limit on their capacity to engineer real change, to fight corruption, to demand a real consensus around national issues. Because in liberalized autocracy, there's a completely fake consensus. There isn't real any real consensus at all. Uh, and, 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 and this questioning process has occurred particularly in the context of a new generation of political actors that have come out of both non-Islamist and particularly Islamist groups. Um, Al-Wasat in Egypt, for example, was a breakaway group many of you are familiar with from uh, the Ikhwan, which really began to reconsider the basic positions of the old leaders, and they were old, of the Muslim brethren in Egypt, and to ask whether, in fact, the 
the, the Muslim Brethren, which was really always complicit in Egypt's authoritarianism, always had an ambivalent attitude about the authoritarian state, whether this new generation should break with that pattern and try to reach out uh, and establish alliances with uh, non-Islamist groups. And in the creation, of, for example, of the Kafaya movement, you will see that there are several key players from Al-Wasat who are instrumental in reaching out to uh, <coughs> secular groups or non-Islamist groups and trying to create an alliance. So increasingly we find uh, in Yemen and in Morocco and in, in Kuwait, uh, in Jordan, that this new generation uh, began to ask these important questions. And it really, these questions really occurred in the wake of the Gulf, the Third Gulf War, the American invasion of Iraq, um, in the context of the new rhetoric and policy orientation, however you judge it, of the Bush administration in terms of making democracy promotion a, a high-level policy agenda for the first time in uh, American history, in terms of the Middle East, that is. And so all this has gave an impetus in the, from roughly 2003 to now for these new political elites on both sides of the line to reach out and start speaking to one another in ways they hadn't done so for many, many years. Egypt did have a brief period of 80s of interesting collaboration between Islamists and non-Islamists. We tend to forget that. There was a period from 84 to 88 where uh, you had alliances, but those alliances didn't last very long, and they were largely tactical in nature. I might add that this, um, this effort to build these alliances also, of course, took place in the context of the Intifada in Palestine, uh, the first and then the second Intifada. Uh, in the case of Egypt and Morocco and certainly Jordan, a lot of these groups that started talking to one another at first started talking to themselves about the Intifada, and all of them could agree that they wanted to, to support the Palestinians and criticize Israel. That was easy. That was an easy thing to agree on. The question was whether they could move beyond that stage of consensus to strategic issues having to do with democratization in their own countries. Kafaya's own political history is rooted in movements created around the Palestinian issue. And when the first intifada seemed to be something of a success and then the peace process began, they moved on to another set of agendas, in part because the original associations that led to the creation of Kafaya couldn't agree on whether to support the second intifada or not. So there's a kind of context, uh, somewhat fortuitous, that is creating all these experiments, experiments that live, that in, in, in the end seem, unfortunately, uh, rather, uh, rather short-lived. So what are, and I will talk somewhat uh, at greater length about um, why, uh, why these are short-lived in terms of several country comparisons, but I want to give you some of the, a taste of some of the general conclusions of this study. And again, I'm going to talk on a level of general, generality here just to give you a sense of what, the, what these four co country studies suggest is the, is the basic problem. And I will start in order of less important and move to the more important factors. Um, certainly, there, one of the reasons why it's been so hard to build alliances is that within both camps, there are subcamps and subcamps. And within all these subcamps, there are very profound generational struggles that have not yet been resolved between old leaders from political parties and, uh, and social movements and NGOs and the new leaders. And <coughs> these conflicts suck the energy out of these movements, and these conflicts are manipulated and instrumentalized by regimes in ways that encourage further conflict. 
These regimes are extremely adept at manipulating these conflicts. These are, there's a very serious generational conflict going on, uh, one that has not yet uh, been resolved, but one that certainly has sapped the energy and further fragmented these, these movements. A second uh, issue is uh, very much <coughs> the, um, the reality of an institutional arena uh, that has become so fragmented over the years as to really sap the capacity of political actors to create what might be called, in very simple terms, effective political society. <laughs> um, in the Arab world, as you well know, go to Morocco, go to Egypt, go to Yemen, you find a plethora of NGOs of different kinds. It's quite extraordinary. What you do not find is effective political parties. Uh, Barrington Moore once wrote, no bourgeoisie, of course he really meant no landed bourgeoisie, no democracy. But you, all, you can also write, no parties, no democracy. No competitive party system, no democracy. You cannot have, you, NGOs cannot substitute for or become political parties. They can help create them. In the Arab world, NGOs have been, have been proliferating in part because regimes don't want effective political parties. They simply don't want them. They have the party, the ruling party of some kind. Um, moreover, uh, hundreds of small, locally run NGOs divides the opposition, weakens it, and therefore what the regimes do not want are one, two, or three, or four serious, effective national NGOs with mass participation, the capacity to mobilize uh, the masses in the street for effective political change. So they encourage um, the splitting up of NGOs, their fragmentation, and the departure of political activists from parties to NGOs. Now, the generational split that I mentioned a moment ago has accelerated this problem because young activists who can't get the Ikhwan Muslimin in Egypt to do the right thing or can't get this organization or that, or that organization or that party, the WAF, to behave as, or the new WAF party in Egypt to behave effectively, what they essentially, essentially do is they leave the party and they create an NGO. <laughs> and they go for perhaps some, sometimes foreign funding. And and therefore, NGOs are seen as the refuge, the effective alternative to political parties. Um, and this is a process that governments have encouraged. And by design or fault, the United States, too, in terms of its democracy promotion policies, have encouraged this process as well. And this leads to a, a third related factor, which is obviously much more crucial, and that is the persistent, enduring, existential identity divides that separate Islamists and non-Islamists. And this ties in, by the way, to this whole NGO process, because if you look closely at the case of Morocco, for example, it's clear that from the perspective of non-Islamists, and particularly more intense, committed secularists, because they perceive that political parties are corrupt and that the only effective political party will be Islamist parties, they have concluded that the only way they can compensate for this fact is to create NGOs or to involve themselves in NGOs that have the tacit, if not explicit, support and funding of regimes and use those NGOs as a way of mobilizing and compensating for their lack of mass support in ways that create corporatist relations between those NGOs and the state and allow those secular groups 
in particular, and also Berber groups in Morocco is another example of that in Algeria, to negotiate to get certain concessions from the regime that they couldn't get in a democratic game. This has been true of women's groups, especially in the Middle East, too. If you look at Jordan, if you look at Morocco, you will see that feminist institutions, many of them are the creation of, have been created by royal decree, have been funded by the kings, the monarchs. Often the, the, <coughs> the queen is going to be the official sort of chairman of this association or that association. And the association, again, is not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a Potemkin association. It's not a cardboard structure you just push. It's, it's an actual institution that has memberships and has had the capacity to lobby with the regime. And in the lobbying process, these groups can certain, get certain kinds of concessions that they, are, that they probably couldn't get in a fully democratic context. Let me just give you a quick example of what I'm getting at here. If you look and analyze closely <coughs> the process by which the family code was, uh, was amended in Morocco to create a relatively more liberal code that is friendly to more westernized political elites, you will see that the king created a, a royal commission and invited everybody to comment and provide their input. So the Islamists provided their input, the women's groups provided their input. In the end, they came up with a, a, a reform of the family code that probably didn't, saw, didn't make anybody happy, but that reform probably could not have taken place through a democratic context. That's certainly the perception of the feminist groups. So they bought into the corporatist solution because it provided a way of compensating for their lack of popular power and the capacity to mobilize and gave them the opportunity to, to create a more level playing field with the Islamist groups. And so this whole process has exacerbated the divisions but all, uh, between these groups, but also reflects the basics of the existential divide, a divide that, of course, in the case of North Africa is cultural, is ideological, and is linguistic. <laughs> if you go to Algiers, and I've been to Algiers three times in the last few years, or you go to Casablanca or Robot, and you you will spend time with one part of the Moroccan society or another, they, the two often don't mix. You'll speak French or you'll speak Arabic. Sometimes you'll speak a weird, a weird version of both. I remember when I was in Algiers one time, my colleagues were dropping me off at my hotel, and they said to the driver, Deplacéhum, you know, Deplacé is French, hum is Arabic. I'd never heard of anything like, any hybrid quite like that. It's quite remarkable. Um, but, you, but the fact of the matter is when I spent time in Algiers, when I, went to, when I spent time with Islamists, I went to some, certain kinds of restaurants. I spent, it was in certain neighborhoods and not in others. We spoke Arabic. We didn't speak French. There are different worlds. One is part of Europe. One looks at the globalization and sees an opportunity. The other looks at globalization and sees an enemy. And so you're talking about an existential divide. And I want to make this very clear because this is often misunderstood. This is not an issue of moderates versus extremists. This is not, this is, you know, often we, in the simplistic sort of literature on political Islam in, in the Arab world, you have the argument that the moderates are the guys who don't use guns and the extremists are the guys with guns. But for secularists, moderates who champion a cultural ideological agenda that they can succeed in imposing through democracy nonviolently represent more of a threat than the radicals who use guns because they can be more effective. And I can understand that um, sensibility. I mean, you know, as an American, secular Jew, 
I, you know, I know the Christian right doesn't use guns, but I don't want them to see it either. Thank you very much. I mean, I, you know, I have qualms about that. That doesn't make me, you know, the, the, for me, you know, extremism can succeed in different ways. And, and you may agree or disagree with that perception, but I'm trying to describe a politically potent and effective and relevant perception of these secular groups. And let's be also clear about this. We're not talking about groups that represent or, or non-Islamist groups too because we're talking about Kurds and Berbers and so on. We're not talking about groups that probably, that obviously represent a huge swath of these societies, right? They might represent, who knows, anywhere from 5 to 15% of 20% of public opinion. I don't know. It's hard to guess. It's hard to know. But strategically, they're really important. <laughs> they're related to elites, elites who have guns, <laughs> have institutions, who have economies. They are important players in the, the globalized sections of these economies. And what they want or don't want plays a role in the political fate of these countries. And Islamists know that. And that is why, of course, that, and we find one of the interesting conclusions from, we find from these studies is Islamists tend to establish alliances. Now I'm talking about moderate state-supported Islamist groups, okay? These groups tend to, to um, create alliances with non-Islamist groups when they're weak, when they need, when they need to reassure uh, the authorities that they don't pose a threat uh, in the wake of, let's say, a consistent clampdown. Moderation among Islamist groups is often the consequence of regime suppression, okay? In fact, that's... Often the formula is put somewhat differently. But in our case studies, we find that groups tend, Islamist groups tend to moderate in the wake of regime repression. <laughs> and they stand back and, and you get a, Morocco is a wonderful example. If you look at the change within the PJD, um, it's largely around those dynamics. Um, so you find that, that this existential barrier between these groups is persistent, endures, and it has a lot to do with the persistence of fear, fear of the consequences of an open political contest. And because of that fear, there's a preference for a political contest which is somewhat open but has a lot of built-in certainty as a result, as a result of the consequence. And uh, so there are a number of interwoven factors, and the fact that they're interwoven helps to explain how persistent they are, the generational, the institutional, the identity, the cultural, the ideological, the regional, the globalized context. All these have tended to reinforce. I would say, in fact, globalization <coughs> and the effect of globalization economically and culturally in terms of making, establishing clear winners and losers in terms of these economies and, and these political uh, these political arenas has exacerbated this fear and widened the gap between these groups um, because the losers are almost always attached to the old economy, uh, always almost always come from the Islamist environment, from the poor parts of the city. It's not a coincidence that if you look at the, the uh, successful and unsuccessful terrorist attacks that have taken place in Casablanca the last few years, including the uh, most recent one only two weeks ago, I think almost all the perpetrators came from this famous slum outside Casablanca. You know, those are the losers in this game. And, and you know, they, they see no hope for themselves. Uh, they, they see no future whatsoever. And they lash out at their perceived enemies. Um, and I think I'll give you a, a, a kind of a rough sort of two case studies which demonstrate the sort of uh, limits of alliance making. One of them I mentioned before, and that's Kefaya. In, uh, in Egypt. Kafaya means uh, enough. <laughs> uh, 
Um, Kafaya is an organization created in 2004-2005. Its roots are found in um, uh, a a number of popular committees committees established to support the Intifada and the Palestinians. It was relatively easy to get Islamists and non-Islamists together to create those committees. They were given the blessing up to a certain extent by the regime. Um, But nevertheless, even in the context of those committees, uh, there were fissures between Islamists and non-Islamists. And strangely enough, or perhaps not so strangely, the Muslim Brethren was particularly hesitant about supporting those committees, in part because the committees were formed by, uh, by leftists. And the hostility and the suspicion uh, separating leftists, Marxists, and Islamists still is enduring and very significant. So even then, in that context of those committees, those popular committees, there were suspicions and splits and personality uh, divisions and so on, the generational divisions. But eventually, you get out of those committees the formation of kafaya uh, in the context of the Bush administration's push for democratization abroad, uh, in the context of the the effort of these new generation of political activists within the Muslim Brethren and within the secular and non-Islamist groups to push for a new form of uh, political resistance. Uh, Interesting enough, you look at Kafaya, its membership was always personal. Nobody represented any particular group. They weren't asked to do so. There was never an effort to build any kind of consensus, serious consensus uh, uh, document. There was a non-hierarchical structure. It made sense to create that kind of a structure. But from the very start of Kafaya's existence, there were profound disputes and disagreements between the Muslim Brethren members, even the more the younger ones, the Was- Al-Wasat members, and um, and uh, and the secularists that took and these battles were fought over various issues, uh, including a, uh, criticism of um, certain uh, certain cabinet members and a position on religious issues and so on. There was a proposition to create Islamic kafaya at one point. It didn't go through. Um, but these these splits within the kafaya movement seriously damaged the movement, which was never broad based in any sense. Never had probably more than several hundred members, um, and never really reached out uh, beyond the confines of a kind of secular, middle class, largely Cairo based movement, and established never established any effective and this is really critical partnerships with the political parties that enabled it to move beyond a certain kind of confine. In fact, it's probably the case that the media exaggerated the relevance of Kafaya, uh, attributed to it more influence than it ever had. But from the very beginning, it was really dragged down by its own internal fragmentation, which the regime was extremely good at uh, manipulating. Um, In the case of Morocco, uh, there was really has never been much of a serious effort to build uh, cross-cutting ideological alliances between mainstream Islamists and secular groups. In the case of Morocco, the stakes are even higher than the case of Egypt. Because of the linguistic, cultural, national divide, um, you, uh, it's been much more difficult to bring these groups together. But also, <coughs> Morocco is in some sense the most pluralistic uh, Arab country, if, if you agree it's an Arab country, in the region. And Morocco's great advantage and great detriment is its level of pluralism. What all groups have been able to do, all significant groups, is find ways to essentially 
use their corporatist, semi-corporatist links to the state uh, to lobby the state for certain kinds of concessions. I mentioned the debate and the struggle over the amending of the family law, the mudawana in Morocco. Um, and in so doing, they have not found it necessary to build alliances, which has been fine for the state. If the state can establish and use its various wings to establish discrete relationships with all these groups, it can, in fact, dissuade them from creating cross-cutting alliances. The PJD, the Justice and Development Party, which models itself on some level with the Justice and Development Party in Turkey, the AK Party, um, did, has flirted with some alliances with smaller leftist parties. But the fundamental fact is that increasing, that the more it, it was successful, the less impetus it had to form alliances. It's only when these groups tend to be weak they seek out the sec support of secular and non-Islamist groups. Uh, and therefore, the PJD really didn't, uh, even Othmani, who's, I, th I think Othmani is a genuine liberal thinker, when I would think I would call him that. Um, but he has not championed um, uh, uh, that kind of uh, relationship. Um, if you've been following events in Morocco, you will see that the PJD was a party essentially that was given the blessing of the king. Um, in order to sort of counter the left and the secular groups, but more importantly to counter the more extreme uh, Islamist movement uh, that al Hassan, that does not have political party representation but nevertheless ha has mass support in the urban areas. So PJD was given the blessing of the regime. Initially its leadership was quite radical or certainly was making statements that worry the regime after the Casablanca bombings that suddenly that leadership was gone. Othmani steps in. He has the blessing in a much more explicit way of the king. And it's critical to Othmani is that he doesn't basically question the fundamental rules of liberalized autocracy. He sees the system as an opportunity to slowly increase the leverage of his movement and therefore has, has basically committed himself to adjustments in the status quo without really taking on in a radical way the status quo. And this is a movement that really makes him complicit with the regime from the perspective of the secular groups, um, who of course all have their own complicity with the king in any case. And so there is really no effort to build any kind of effective alliances between the two. And the more successful the PJD has become, um, the more it has resisted cooperating with other groups. In fact, the, 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 the rumor in, in Morocco is that the PJD's success is a consequence of American <laughs> intervention, which is an interesting kind of conspiracy theory in of itself. Um, the secular groups see the increasing prospects of a PJD victory as extremely scary. And so they have basically given uh, their blessing to a gerrymandering of the electoral uh, map that, whose purpose is clearly to favor, is clearly to favor uh, an outcome that will, not that will not put the PJD in the position of having a majority of seats in the parliament. And um, the PJD has complained bitterly about this. Othmani, who was initially kind of a puppy and was not terribly confrontational, has become increasingly confrontational. But he finds himself without allies. Suddenly, when he needs to speak to these other parties and groups, they are, they are tacitly supporting a gerrymandering of the elections, which uh, is designed to make sure that at the end of the day, the, the, the king has promised to pick a prime minister from the party with the most seats in the parliament. It sounds to us like an obvious thing to do in a parliamentary system, uh, but it's not obvious in the Arab world where kings 
and, and uh, tend in parliamentary systems presided over by monarchs. Monarchs tend to, to choose uh, <laughs> to, to choose uh, prime ministers that do their bidding and not necessarily from the parties with the majority of the seats. Now there we had one, we already had one precedent in Morocco where in fact the king made the late king made that decision, but the the the, the, the great power sharing experiment of the 90s was not terribly successful. The young king has. Uh, prime, has a prime minister and members of parliament who are essentially technocrats, so then he has promised now a new parliament in which he's going to choose a, a, um, a, a, a prime minister from the majority party. But the majority party may suddenly turn out to be the new anti-Islamist alliance, which suddenly in the last six months has been gaining steam. What's quel surprise, as we say in French, right? And uh, Othmani is very unhappy about this, but the gap between him and his and his potential allies is now so great as to, it seems to preclude a possible uh, united effort to confront the regime's effort to reinvigorate liberal isotocracy. So we're back, we're, we're back to the beginning here. So, so and these are just two examples, and there are many more, and I could go on and give you others, but they're just two examples of the extent to which institutional, generational, ideological, ethnic fragmentation in these political oppositions has really inhibited the capacity uh, for these for these oppositions to create the kind of leverage they would need to reach out to these regimes and push them uh, towards greater reform. Having said that, the real question is, do these regimes have any real soft liners? <laughs> Are there any elements within these regimes who can be considered O'Donnell uh, Schmitter as genuine exponents of some sort of reform process <coughs> that will have more substance to it than it has had thus far? And I think that's an open question. I mean, I certainly think in the case of Egypt, Gamal, Abdul, uh, Gamal Mubarak, I want to say another Gamal, Gamal Mubarak does not represent the soft liners within the ruling party. It's just the new generation of hardliners, basically. He's representing his father's hardline in a somewhat more technocratic, globalized language that's appealing to, Amer uh, to American congressmen when they go there or when Gamal comes to Washington, but doesn't represent a decisive break the basic pattern of authoritarianism established by his father. And so when you consider the weakness of the so-called soft liners in regimes and the fragmentation of oppositions in society, this is not a formula for breaking the status quo, I'm afraid to say. So on that happy note, I'll, I'll end my, my presentation and answer questions. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Well, our, I, our writers do not accept your categories. They would look at the Ikhwan Muslim and they would find moderates and hardliners within that movement itself, <coughs> for example. Um, uh, they wouldn't say the Ikhwan is the moderate group and the Takfir al Hijra movements are the extremist groups. Uh, the, they, would, they would describe the more hardite elements of the Ikhwan as those who want to impose a Sharia state and use democracy for that end. They would argue that those who have a kind of liberal interpretation of Sharia who do not see democracy as a vehicle for Islamization and the Islamic State as the more moderates. 
um, who want to engage and reach out to secular groups and find common ground. So within each, all of these movements, if, if you look at the Nasserists, you look at the, the communists, you look at the socialists in, in Egypt, you will find those who are for reaching out and finding common ground and talking about sort of a new vision, and those who are saying, we can't talk to these guys. And that's part of the problem, too. Among the non-Islamist groups, there are very significant divisions. Some are tactical, more some are strategic about whether we should talk to those other guys. And in every case we've looked at, and we, in, the, in the case of the Egypt case study, which has been undertaken by Dina Shahata, she goes over like 15 examples of efforts to build alliance making. In almost all of those cases, those sorts of divisions basically inhibited the capacity of these movements to sustain themselves. Because eventually, the, these sorts of divisions were manipulated by the government. <laughs> and they found their own patrons and gave them support in ways that... Uh, by the way, if you look at PJD, uh, the, uh, the rise of... PJD was, cre in, in effect, given its blessing by the king in order to provide a moderate Islamist group. Then it suddenly became more successful than the king ever wanted in Morocco. So he suddenly found a new faction within the PJD to support against Othmani. So these sorts of divisions are... are they're not invented by regimes, but they're effectively manipulated by them. Yes? It's a qualitative study based on analysis of text, campaign statements, extensive interviewing of the party, uh, party leaders, NGO leaders, some, some quantitative work based on surveys of public opinion and actual work done by USAID in terms of counting NGOs and things like that, but mostly it's, co it's qualitative work. The studies are, the authors are Dina Shahada, uh, who is both a grad student at Georgetown University and a senior researcher at the al Haram Center, who came back to, to the United States to do this study for us. Uh, Iris Glossmeyer, a German scholar, uh, who uh, is director of the Center for Omani Studies, but also an expert on Yemen in her own right. Uh, Mariam uh, Montagu, who is, who is an Iranian-American political activist who represented NDI in Morocco for many years and uh, has no longer works for NDI, but she, under she knows the terrain very well when she did this study for us. And Janine Clark, a Canadian, uh, who did the study on Jordan, who's done extensive work. Each of these scholars had already done a huge amount of work on the subject because we needed scholars who could go in the field and hit the ground running, who knew the place, who knew the people, who could do the interviews because they only they ended up doing three or four months of research, but that was against the background of several years working on those countries already. And you'll notice that both these, none of these scholars are, you know, they're not really Americans. I mean, to be honest with you, we, we, we felt it was very important that, that uh, these scholars have credibility. And the United States has a severe credibility problem in the region now. So we picked people. I think we, we did very well. And the, the results are interesting. But, you know, we, the, you know how, it's an interesting experiment. People who've been in the field who have worked with these groups for a long time often have a much more micro sense of the field, but don't necessarily have the tools analytically to do the more macro analysis. So in, this, in the process, we have to work with our authors a lot, particularly those who have been more activist-oriented, to get them to sort of do the more global analysis. And we haven't wanted to, in that sense, impose too rigorous a, a framework on them. We had to let them have room to breathe. We will publish results, but, uh, uh, and we probably will put them up online, too, so I'll, I'll let you know on USAP's webpage in time, in the next few months, in fact.
<coughs> yes. I don't know. That's, that's the big question. I don't know. I mean, I think we, first of all, we over, we exaggerate the influence we can have. Um, but one of, parenthetically, um, one of the major divisions in all these groups is whether to deal with the United States or not, how to deal with the United States, whether to engage with the United States, whether to work with democracy promoters, whether to take foreign money. And that issue, which is an ideological and practical issue, is divided, particularly among the, the non-Islamist groups, has divided them severely and led to arguments, defections, splits, f further fragmentation. Um, in the context of a regional situation which has just deteriorated, if you look at, obviously, Iraq and Palestine, those are two issues that are just, just disastrous for us. The notion that we would go promoting democracy uh, in the Arab world and not resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was ludicrous. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Just, you know, insane. that We just think we could do this and, and let that other thing fester. A goal democratize Iraq and the Palestine issue just sits there. So um, it's uh, it's a, it's a the, democracy promoters. They the, the dilemma for democracy promoters is, is is that they probably share the agenda of their Arab counterparts in almost all ways, including on the Palestine issue. But they can't affect the agenda in Washington. They're looking for they're looking for opportunities to sort of square this circle, um, and uh, the context is a bad one for them to operate in now. This is, this is what we're finding. I mean, it's not a surprise in that regard, but it's, it's the reality. Yeah. I and several others here work primarily on Turkey, and I've been quite interested in this phenomenon of, of parties and political groups in the Arab world getting interested in the AKP in Turkey. Albert Durrani informed us that in 1923, <coughs> the Arabs parted ways. Arabs didn't need the Turks anymore, so it's, it's been quite... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in the Middle East, for the most part, politics is local. I mean, you go to a place and people really pay attention to the immediate context. The Palestine issue provides, the, and now Iraq provides kind of the regional, those regional issues, but so much of the intensity of politics is really a local phenomenon. Having said that, um, there are, there, the, the Turkish experiment is followed and particularly by the Justice and Development Party in Morocco. In fact, our, our author on Morocco, Mariam Montague, has traveled with members of PJD to Istanbul to meet with their, with their brethren in, uh, in Turkey. Uh, the experiment has not worked out so well because often the Turkish AK Party people tell us, you're really not like us. We're the real thing. We're the real Muslim Democrats. You're not. Ah, a little Turkish Arab thing going on there, right? You know, ah, you know, that's what I'm told. Is, you, know, oh, yeah, you think you're like us, but you're really not like us. And in some sense, of course, when you think about the macro context, they're not. I mean, there's an economy, there's a bourgeoisie, there's exports, there's the relationship with the EU. I mean, there's a whole, you know, it's a, it, we're, tell, we're comparing apples and oranges, really, here, in terms of the, the, con the context of constraints and opportunities in which these is Islamist parties work are radically different. But there is another story, and that is increasingly the signals from the AK Party in terms of some backtracking on Islamist issues and the question of the judges and the re raising questions about the extent to which the AK Party represents a Muslim democratic alternative, genuine, strategic, committed, and so on. Uh, the Vali Nasser sort of thesis about the AK Party. Um, 
in which he brought in Indonesia, of course, as well. And as a consequence of that, there, some Arab activists, including secularists, are pointing to Turkey as a, a place where this thing might fail and better be careful. So this is a kind of boomerang effect of the Turkish experiment because the AK party was never a cohesive party. It had multiple constituencies, including a constituency who wants it to be an Islamist party, even though it insists it's a non-Islamist party. Um, and so you have to make everybody happy. <laughs> uh, and one of the dynamics one finds in... And this is not an unusual process. I mean, once you get involved in real politics, you've got, uh, you've got to make certain kinds of concessions. We were talking about this in the case of Indonesia. Uh, you have to make certain kinds of concessions to be in politics and sacrifice certain kinds of ideals. On the other hand, you've got a constituency who wants to see the real deal. And so you have to learn how to speak multiple languages and appeal and keep that coalition together. It's kind of a populist co uh, strategy. It's very familiar. But it, it undermines the capacity of these these political parties to endure, because eventually, you, if you sort of try to make everybody happy, you make everybody unhappy, and you pay the cost, the Gorbachev, you know, cost of, sort of that kind of strategy. So, uh, so Turkey is an interesting example, but it could play different ways. I think there's less attention to Turkey. Uh, another thing about Turkey is the, the role of the military, a very special role, given a certain kind of blessing in the Constitution, and uh, given a formal role. You really have nothing like that in the Arab world. Um, in Algeria, everybody understands that the military is absolutely central, but everybody denies it you know, on some level. Um, of course, the military in particular. Um, and so there have been proposals to institutionalize the power of, uh, Turkey, of Algeria's military along the lines of Turkey's military. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just said, oh. So, uh, so you can see how complicated it is. So people pay attention, but... Sometimes they pay, pay attention with conclusions you might start having concerns about. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's, so it is, people do pay attention to it, uh, to one degree or the other. I, my immediate guess is if you go to Yemen, you'll find much less attention paid to, <laughs> or Kuwait, for example. Tunisia, I believe, right? Well, well, I mean, Turkey, for, that for different reasons. Tunisians see themselves as, you know, one successful case of state-promoted secularization in, in, the, in, the, in the Arab world. And Ataturk's legacy, obviously, has, to some extent affects the position of Ben Jadid and so on. But Tunisia is a much smaller place. <laughs> There's much less to contend with there than there is in the bigger Arab states. Yes, ma'am. Well, you mentioned um, the, the, the hope for uh, softliners within the existing political regimes. Um, what, what's your take on He speaks bad Arabic. His English is much better. Um, I think that he's inherited a, an impossible situation, made worse by Iraq. You know, it's over, this, the Jordanian situation is overdetermined. To use Jordan as a kind of case study for democratization it, from a theoretical perspective is, is a very dubious proposition because so many unique circumstances and how do you separate those out from the more structural conditions that may be affecting the outcome? I mean, the, from a methodological point of view, it's, 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 it's a real challenge. And, and, but it turns out, of course, the more you look at different countries, the more they have the same sort of uniqueness and particular characteristics. So theory building is, is a challenge for, for political scientists. But, uh, but I think the king deals with the Palestinian issue with, uh, with, with increasing uh, economic effects of, of the exodus from Iraq on the economy, both positive and negative in terms of Jordan's economy. And I think that under other circumstances of, in which he faced fewer constraints and the passing issue were on the way to being resolved, 
he would, who would be able to move in a more reformist direction. But he doesn't have that luxury, and I can understand why, from his perspective, he doesn't. Um, and there is the very severe, enduring divide between the Palestinian population and the Jordanian Bedouin uh, uh, population, and that continues to be, and that's been instrumentalized by both by him, by his father, and by him, by the bureaucracy, by the hiring practices, uh, by the um, gerrymandering of electoral system meant to reach more into the Bedouin and tribal areas and to compensate for the power of the Palestinians in the urban areas, and so that has increased the antagonism and, and the existential political uh, identity divide between those two sides. Um, you know, these these regime leaders inherit messes they make. <laughs> And then they're complicit in them, and then they think they can undo them. You know, it's very path-dependent, and it's very hard for them to do so. And I just don't think he's, he, has, he has the capacity, the, the allies or whatever, to sort of move in a – he had a – he presided over a period of significant deliberalization, uh, typical liberalized autocracies, which go through these cycles of liberalization and deliberalization. And now he seems to be considering moving back in a somewhat more liberalized vein, but I think that – you know, he has very little, his perception is he has very little room for maneuver. And I can understand that. I mean, he's hemmed in between the Palestinian issue on one side, Iraq on the other. Uh, who would want to be, who would want to be in that position? It, it, I have argued, I still believe it's true that in terms of the possibilities for liberalizing these regimes and moving in a more democratic direction, that monarchs have an advantage over presidents. Monarchs tend to, they're not tied to ruling establishments in the same way, to ruling parties. Um, and as a consequence, they can arbitrate between competing groups and at least have the appearance of the mythology of being arbitrators. I mean, because they, of course, they have their interests and their allies as well, but they have more flexibility structurally, and therefore they can balance these things off better. And that is certainly, uh, that is certainly advantageous in terms of political liberalization. Whether that's advantageous in terms of democracy, I'm not quite sure it might be. But in terms of liberalization, it certainly has been. Um, and Mubarak is far more constrained by the inheritance of the ruling party than his analogs are in monarchs. Monarchy. That's why, by the way, monarchs, monarchs tend to be, in some respects, more successful modernizers than the presidents of so-called post-populist regimes, such as Algeria or Egypt. Dina. Excuse me, that's a very tough question. It's a very good question. It's a very tough question to answer because we are talking about political systems which, for the most part, in which large numbers of people have been depoliticized for a long time and in which large numbers of the populace are not engaged, are not mobilized. And if they have been mobilized, it's been mobilized through a kind of ritual of state-managed mobilization during elections which has no real institutional content whatsoever. Um, so under those conditions, the kinds of ideological and political divides we're talking about are largely between a kind of, for the most part, an urban political elite 
whose roots has, have certain kinds of limitations, and that's even true of the Islamist parties as well, although obviously their roots go further down. Um, and so when we have moments of political mobilization that exceed previous moments, some, we, we often don't know why people vote the way they do. Uh, often a vote for Islamists is a vote against the status quo and not an endorsement, for example, of their, of their actual identity politics. Um, but separating out the wheat from the chaff is a very difficult problem, for, in part because we lack enough cases and we lack enough data to make, to make serious judgments. I think, speaking sort of anecdotally in, in a more qualitative sense, I would say that the kinds of divides I've been talking about exist on, on, on a social level as well. Um, they're not purely a matter of sort of elite divisions. Um, they reflect also urban-rural divisions as well. Um, but how they would play out in terms of a more, more mobilized political population that was consistently involved in politics is an interesting question. I still believe, and I've written this, that there remains in all these Arab countries uh, significant pluralities who would provide an alternative to either regimes or Islamist, Islamist agendas but those constituencies remain fragmented and disor disorganized and therefore don't have the capacity to project themselves through elections. Um, the, the great, one of the great sort of unfortunate um, legacies of the, the Nasser's experiment in Egypt and elsewhere is the depolitization of the populace, and the extent to which what is left is regimes, hollowed out political parties, multi uh, civil society groups without very deep roots, and the absence of what we would call strong, organized political society. Um, and uh, so we need to see you know, how things would change. But unfortunately, we don't get there, because what happens when the Islamists begin to make, make inroads and begin to mobilize those voices, which were not part of the political system before, the Sunni regimes and their, their tacit allies in the secular groups get really nervous. And then these tacit, give their, these tacit allies give their blessings to a retreat, uh, and these regimes go back. And so we cycle in and out of these periods of liberalization and deliberalization without really ever testing the kinds of questions you're, you suggest need testing through further and more enlarged political experiments. We just don't have that. We thought maybe we'd get it from Morocco. And, you know, here we're going to see this, again, this, to my mind, unfortunate pattern because I think Morocco, I think Morocco would be better off letting the elections fall as they, as they should. The king picks Othmani as the prime minister. <laughs> He creates, Othmani will have to rule in coalition with some secular non-Islamist parties. You actually give them real political power and you see what happens. Uh, but the king is getting nervous already and he's retreating. Well, the part, you know, it's possible that the, the fear is that this is the last election, but also the one sort of perception is that even if it's not, what this winning party will do is begin to change the name of the game in terms of the legal status of women, in terms of the constitution, in terms of the sharia, and little by little, 
basically transform the nature of, of society itself. Because what – we're not talking about how to divide up the economic pie. We're talking about how to divide up the identity pie. We're talking about what it means to be a Moroccan or an Algerian or an Egyptian. What does it mean? And so what's at stake – and it's also it's not – what's at stake also for the ruling elites is not only where Egypt stands in terms of Egypt, but where Egypt stands in terms of the region and its relationship with the United States and its relationship with Israel. One of the problems for Islamist parties is they reject not only a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine, but, uh, but they, they propose an Islamic sort of solution in of itself. And they, they can't envision any kind of process of peacemaking that would, that would be acceptable to, to moderates among the Palestinians and the Israelis. And for regimes to, to allow this kind of – in Egypt, which has a peace treaty with, Egypt, with Israel, obviously, to allow these groups in and have political power when they reject the kind of strategic – agenda of the, of the military establishment itself uh, is, is very dangerous. So all these factors really exacerbate the perception of risk coming from non-Islamist groups. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.